Welcome to episode three of the Planning Life Insights of Brian, a podcast looking into the practical things that you need to navigate your business through the UK planning system. Today, we're going to look at structuring permissions and planning agreements so that they are fit for purpose commercially across the life cycle of a development, not just the planning stage. Planning conditions and planning obligations are a tool for mitigating impact. And they're also a vehicle for all the creative flexibility we love building into permissions to make sure they are deliverable in changing times. But that's a session we can do another time. Today, we're going to remember that major mixed use or multi-phase schemes are not just placemaking beacons, but also an asset class. And we'll be focusing on planning conditions and planning obligations as a vehicle for providing clarity and confidence to future investors, purchasers, or occupiers of your scheme. My name is Sheridan Traeger, Senior Associate in the planning team of law firm Brian Cave Leighton Paisner. With me today are my planning team colleagues, Gemma Green, a first seat trainee, and Mike Dempsey, also a Senior Associate, as well as Verity Wainton, a partner in our real estate team. And joining us as the fifth element is Raquel Pacifici, Associate Director at Cast Consultancy. She is at the coalface of bringing forward developments, managing design, procurement, and construction delivery for some pretty prominent schemes. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Now, bear with me for a moment. Imagine you're watching one of Britain's many successful baking shows. To impress the judge, a contestant has a go at a Victoria sponge cake. It looks great, says the judge, but the contestant says, um, yes, but before you try a piece, I must tell you, you can't really cut it into slices and share it out. Uh, you can eat all of it or none of it. And if you did somehow manage to cut a slice, if you eat it, there's a chance you'll end up with the calories from half the cake. Um, how, did, how did that happen, asks the judge. Well, says the contestant, I was so pressed for time and so focused on the taste and getting it to, to look fantastic that I didn't really think about it actually getting cut up and shared out. And anyway, um, I thought that finding a knife and getting it cut was my partner's job, not mine. I thought she'd just work it out. What planet are you on? The judge thinks. But dodgy baking contest analogy aside, this is actually something you come across quite often in due diligence when you acquire parts of major development sites across the UK. That's right, Sheridan. Here at BCLP, we're not only involved in schemes when they're getting planning, we're involved right through the life cycle of the project. So very often before our clients have even acquired the sites, we're negotiating options for them to acquire them subject to obtaining satisfactory planning. We come in when developments are forward funded and we can be involved before there's planning and sometimes afterwards. We're also involved throughout the construction phase and also when the developments are being let up or sold on in one piece, but very often in parcels and at various stages of construction. We're obviously also involved when developments are financed and refinanced. And increasingly, we're seeing that the permissions and planning agreements achieved for some pretty big schemes have not always been structured in ways that will make it easy for the relevant investor, operator, forward funder, buyer or lender to accept the risk involved. Now, there are, of course, some creative ways around these issues after the event, which we can look at later. But prevention is always less painful and expensive than cure. That's right. At CAST, we see a lot of this as well. At the time of submitting a planning application, 
The developer and design team need to make certain assumptions about how the project will be delivered and the building operated once complete. At this stage of the project, though, there are still a lot of unknowns around these elements. Because no one can see into the future, these assumptions can turn out to be not true when it comes down to de actually delivering the project one or two years later. This can be due to various factors, including funder requirements or market forces, and it means that sometimes the initial assumptions cannot turn out to be incorrect or no longer relevant. Raquel, historically, you've often spoken about being really frustrated about the timings and planning conditions. Yeah, that's right. And particular attention needs to be focused on pre-commencement conditions and the pre-above-grade works conditions, as these are the ones that give you the most flexibility on how the project is phased and delivered. The reality is that large schemes are complex and have a lot of working parts. The timings are in, around when various project elements, such as the funding agreement and the construction contract, when they're put in place, is, does not often work together with one another. So the team needs to make sure that they leave flexibility in the way the planning permission is set up. So for example, at the time of submitting planning, the, the developer may not know how the financing for the project will be structured, much less who the funder will be. Now, each funder has their own view and their own requirements, so it's difficult to tailor the planning permission to their requirements when they're purely hypothetical. This is where experience and building a flexible planning permission comes in. And just on that last point, inevitably a few real-world factors come into play during the application process that mean applicants will often be taking a short-term view. The teams applying for permission will be focused on getting the consent. Um, at a time when there's real uncertainty, there'll be local politics, the need to accommodate local authority expectations, and officer members may not necessarily hold the same views, plus there may be public opposition to the scheme. And almost certainly the applicants' teams at this stage probably will not be the same teams who go on to construct the project or operate it long term either. I think that's totally right, Mike. But I think one of the key reasons must be awareness of the issues and how they play out long term and having the right professional advice to give you that kind of strategic foresight. Verity, before we dive into structuring planning permissions and planning agreements, can you make the abstract concrete for us? Take a couple of typical types of schemes and show us a crystal ball of what's going to happen to them as part of an asset class post-planning. And I'm just putting this out there. Why don't you try and do a Mystic Meg impression? <laughs> I don't think I'll be doing any impressions. Listening figures will go down, but I'm, um, I can definitely give you a couple of examples. So um, example one, you've got a scheme with five proposed towers in London. All are going to be built out by a UK developer to the specifications of the relevant end user. One is going to be affordable housing run by a registered provider. Two are intended to be sold onto a major property fund to be run as built to rent. One is proposed for office use, so our client is looking to forward fund that one. And the remaining one is to be residential with the intention to sell off the flats on long leases to occupiers and to create a ground rent investment, which can also be sold off. The new owners of the private towers are likely to look to lenders to finance or refinance many times through the lifetime of the development. And the owners of the property fund will obviously over time look to diversify potentially, and it means they may move out of build to rent and into retirement living, and so they may sell on their investments. 
As another example, take a major regeneration scheme in any big town. It has everything from student housing, retail, hotels, offices, all on one very large site. This type of urban regeneration scheme will end up having a number of the buildings completed in phases. Elements will be delivered by various developers and various parts will be forward sold or forward funded. Ensuring that the permission obtained works for all of these different elements and has sufficient flexibility to cater for this takes some planning. Uh, it sounds like the highs and lows of a space opera, the, the life of a scheme. Thanks, Verity. Let's reel back to the planning stage. Gemma, our planning application goes in. There are nuances around who needs to make the planning application to appeal refusals. But otherwise, does it matter for current purposes who gets planning permission? No, it doesn't matter. So the default position for any planning permission is that unless it says otherwise, it will endure for the benefit of the land and of all persons for the time being interested in it. So in that sense, it's like a property right, which attaches to the land rather than to the applicant personally. And the land to which the benefit of the permission is attaching is shown on the application red line i.e. on the site location plan and other design drawings for local authority approval. Now, a lot of planning conditions are going to be imposed on the kinds of permissions we're talking about. They're intended to enhance the quality of development and enable the development to go ahead where it would otherwise have been necessary to refuse permission by mitigating adverse effects. So let's look at structuring planning conditions first. To understand that, we need to have a quick understanding of whom planning conditions can be enforced against. So if you're looking at an enforcement notice where the local authority thinks there has been a breach of planning control, they serve it on the owner and on the occupier of the land to which the breach relates and mm. any other person with an interest in the land which the authority thinks is materially affected by the notice. I think it's worth adding to that that some local authorities will take the approach of serving on basically everyone with an interest in the site. Um, the reason being it, it, to let them sort the problem out between them. And often when it comes to the drafting of the planning conditions, it's not been totally clear how people should understand the land to which the breach relates. And if it's not clear, the inference could be that it's all of the land which benefits from the permission. Anyway, the enforcement notice will say, we, the council, think you need to take particular steps within a particular time. Exactly. And if the period for compliance in the enforcement notice ends and the steps the local authority wanted taken have been ignored or any activity the local authority wanted stopped is still being carried on, then the person who is then the owner of the land is in breach of the notice and liable for a criminal offence. And that's the case unless they can show that they did everything they could be expected to do so to secure compliance. Now, a, a big part of the defence could be, look, we don't own or control the land where the breach has taken place but it could still be messy if the condition technically relates to your land too, because that's not clear. It's in the council's discretion whether to take enforcement action. They don't have to. It has to be expedient to issue an enforcement notice. They have to have regard to the provisions of their local policy, their development plan, to any other material considerations, and you'd expect a council to act rationally. But for now, we're not interested in creative arguments. We're about prevention. Yes, and speaking from experience, it's never a great place to be on a refinancing or, or a forward fund, for example, explaining to lawyers acting for a lender or an investor that, yes, technically the borrower or landowner is in breach, but please don't worry, because on a risk-based approach, the council's unlikely to take enforcement action. And the, the analysis is basically the same if, instead of an enforcement notice, the council chooses to serve a breach of condition notice instead. There's a defence to say you took all reasonable measures to secure compliance or look, you know, I no longer have control of the land. 
But again, you need clarity on what is the relevant land when you're talking about the breach. So step one is you want to make it crystal clear that the planning permission comprises appropriately self-contained phases of development on the site, which match how you anticipate the site being split up commercially. Yes, so in my examples, each tower might be a separate phase with planning conditions which relate to those individual phases so you can satisfy them on a phase-by-phase -phase basis. Exactly. So you tie back the conditions only to the specific phases of development on which they should actually bite. A developer argues strongly that site-wide conditions which cut across phases should only be imposed if it's entirely policy and, of course, case law. Yes, and we should remember that the tests are that conditions need to be necessary, relevant to planning, relevant to the development to be permitted, enforceable, precise, and then reasonable in all other respects. P planning is so full of uh, adjectives, Gemma. And at the planning stage, you, you've basically got to take those and interrogate it in each case. Is it really necessary and reasonable and precise or relevant to the development in each particular phase to have conditions securing mitigation for other phases binding the phase that you are interrogating. Exactly, and when the site is split up, it's not going to make it any easier to sell a phase if key commercial development can only be unlocked on one phase when conditions on a phase in someone else's control have been discharged. Totally agree, Verity. This is especially true for buildings that are likely to be delivered early or in the first phase of the development. The team needs to check that there are no conditions tied to elements that will be delivered later in the project that prevent the early phases from being occupied. So for example, in the case of affordable housing or affordable office space, in most cases, this will need to be delivered before the rest of the development can be occupied. On large mixed use developments, developers will often try to bring the occupation of retail and commercial elements forward because they will be complete much sooner than the residential element and can be a good source of early income. However, if the affordable housing element takes longer than the retail build, this may not be able to be released. Therefore, the developer needs to work with the planning authority to tie first occupation only to the residential elements or they need to factor in the delivery program element into their wider delivery strategy and start the affordable element sooner. Um, I think you had another example, didn't you, Raquel? Yeah, so um, I worked on a scheme where several stories of office space were tied to a condition that said that this space could not be occupied until a lease was signed for the affordable office space that was also to be delivered as part of the project. Now, the affordable office space was located in another building that was not due to be complete until about two years after the prime office space. And there's a difference between the prime office market and the affordable office market in that the prime office market is willing to sign leases years in advance. And the, there's much less appetite to do that when it comes to affordable office space. So in this case, the developer and their agency team had to work incredibly hard to find a tenant willing to take the affordable space so far in advance so that they could satisfy the preoccupation condition and release a major element of the asset. Those all sound like uh, pretty good examples of why you need to pay particular attention to conditions that need to be discharged before development is commenced or before it's occupied. And you really need to stress test any conditions that require steps to be taken before works on the entire site are commenced or the whole development is occupied. 
Yes, and there's national policy support for developers on this, Sheridan. So the MPPG says the local planning authority should ensure that the timing of submission of any further details meets with the planned sequence for developing the site. So conditions that unnecessarily affect an applicant's ability to bring a development into use, allow a development to be occupied or otherwise impact on the proper implementation of the planning permission should really not be used. So yeah, what you point to, Gemma, is the ideal. However, the reality is that often local authorities don't consider how a scheme is funded, procured, or delivered, nor do they consider the timing around how each of these stages happen and when, when they're setting out their conditions. I mean, it could also simply be that their obligation to ensure quality schemes that enhance the built environment and takes residents' needs into account outweigh the finer details of how developers deliver schemes. But either way, the result is often conditions that do not align with how schemes are delivered in real life. I guess the theme of the session, Raquel, is it's the developer's job stage to keep an eye looking forward on all of this. I think that probably neatly takes us on to phase in. You, you sometimes see pressure to secure a particular order of phase in or delivery of specific elements of a scheme, particularly where there is some community facility like a school or open space to be delivered. Um, historically, on the mixed use permissions incorporating major retail elements, local authorities would often require the delivery of the non-retail uses first because they worried that uh, these elements would not be delivered if the um, retail element was allowed to um, take precedence. And part of that um, is, is that developers sometimes run the, the planning concept of enabling development, whereby certain development is justified on the basis that it would enable the carrying out of other development that is desirable in planning terms. And often this might be in a heritage context. Yes, and national policy is open to conditions being imposed to ensure that development proceeds in a certain sequence or that a particular element in a scheme is provided by a particular stage. But it does expect local planning authorities to try and understand how this would fit into the planned sequence for developing the site, impacts on viability, and as you said, interrogate whether the tests of reasonableness and necessity are met. Yes, and from a transactional perspective, there are some really real commercial implications for most schemes if an entire phase needs to be built out before yours on land that you don't control, as it means a third party over which you have no control can prevent you from realising the income that your business plan needs in order for the whole project to be viable. I mean, there are a number of ways to mitigate this risk such as retentions or stepping rights to be able to complete the off-site works. You can even have a mechanism to take control of the construction documents to force delivery, or we've also seen sometimes mechanisms to take control of the third-party site, but none of this is ideal. Yeah, the, I mean, the ideal would be to um, obviously have a, um, a planning commission that's neatly divided up in terms of conditions and so on. But the problem at the planning stage is that this strategic consideration doesn't always necessarily happen. Applicants will often be desperate to get their applications before committee and councils have their own time and resourcing constraints that may mean that they only issue a draft set of conditions as, as part of the committee papers and rather than being bespoke to the particular scheme, often the conditions um, may well be based on all manner of precedents um, from other schemes. And the local authority focus will naturally be on making sure all mitigation is somehow secured. Um, as lawyers, we're, we're not usually involved at this stage either. And 
ultimately nobody wants to rock the boat on the conditions and potentially cause the application to miss the forthcoming committee. You see, I think you can get away with this, uh, you know, if, if it's a single use, single face site to be forever under one ownership. But otherwise, I think you've got to line up the consultant's technical documents from the time you apply, particularly uh, the environmental statement, and, and uh, be clear uh, that the particular pro pro proposed mitigation should only be allocated to the relevant phase, um, because that's ultimately what, they, what the council is going to use to inform the planning conditions. But then I think mo most importantly, as a matter of communication, you've got to tee up the council to your need to look at the conditions properly. Yeah, and then spending a little time, Sheridan, making sure that the drafting, um, that lots of lawyers for buyers and lenders in the future will be looking at, doesn't necessarily cause difficulties or create potential hostages to fortune. Brilliant. Okay, so let's turn to structuring obligations in planning agreements, also called Section 106 agreements, which developers are going to have to negotiate with a local planning authority to help ensure that the proposed development in these major schemes will be acceptable in planning terms. So the objective of planning obligations is essentially the same as planning conditions. But you can't easily use planning conditions on the face of a planning permission for complex bilateral arrangements like mechanisms around affordable housing or for financial contributions. A lot of the principles on how to structure planning obligations are similar to planning conditions as we just discussed, but there are some key differences. I'd say the most obvious one is that if a particular Section 106 obligation binds the whole site, and there is joint and several liability, which is the usual position on Section 106 agreements, then if one landowner breaches an obligation on their plot, technically the local authority can choose to enforce against another landowner bound by the agreement. And one of the biggest concerns is that an authority can recover unpaid financial contributions from any single person with an interest in the whole site, or where an agreement requires any operations to be carried out on one plot, but this doesn't happen. Uh, Section 106 entitles the authority to enter the land, carry out the operations, recover reasonable expenses from anyone else on the site. And that's because to make sure that planning obligations bind successors in title, so not just the developer and original landowners who signed up, Section 106 of the Town and Country Planning Act 1990 says that the local planning authority can enforce not only against the people who originally entered into the obligation, but also against anyone deriving title from those people. So that means that the obligations are said to run with the land. So Gemma, um, using my dodgy baking analogy, this is where a planning agreement risks baking in what we'll call the indivisibility of risk for prospective purchases of part of a scheme and their lenders. That's right, Sheridan. And remember that this is all about really making sure that a local authority can get the mitigation promise at the planning stage. So Section 106 allows a local planning authority enhanced powers to get an injunction if there's been a breach. So let's say, for example, there are obligations to be discharged before work to commence. The authority can obtain a court order halting the construction programme. And if preoccupation obligations are not satisfied, technically, the authority can get an injunction stopping the premises being occupied until the position is sorted out. Uh, some authorities even have Section 106 templates that say, if you're not complying with an ongoing obligation, say a travel plan, they can require that all occupation ceases. Um, a case officer in an authority I acted for once told me with a bit of a twinkle in his eye, I don't think we'd ever do that, but makes him think, doesn't it? Again, as, as for planning conditions for major mixed-use sites or phase schemes, one should try and interrogate whether it's necessary for each 
part of the development on a plot by plot basis to be bound by a particular planning obligation rather than just binding the whole site. For example, is it always necessary for the entire site's infrastructure contributions to be payable before occupation of any single plot? Or could payments be split so that only the proportion directly related to what is proposed on a specified plot need be paid before its use commences? The same question could equally be asked of Section 106 obligations requiring the submission, approval and implementation of different strategies or plans for different phases or elements of the development. From when we've acted for local authorities, uh, sometimes they're worried about the administrative burden of having to approve lots of strategies and schemes and checking payments for different phases, and they might want a consistent approach. But you've got to balance that against the complexity you're baking into agreements between plot owners later on. For some things, like a site-wide public realm strategy, that's easier to sort out than parent company guarantees for massive site-wide infrastructure contributions. Yes, I agree with that, Sheridan. On the really large schemes, you'd expect there to be a sort of estate management strategy, for example, which has been developed as the landowner has worked through the master planning process, which all developers then buying into the site have to comply with. And in my experience, if the strategy is properly thought out and drafted fairly and reasonably, then I think most developers see it as a positive, knowing that all of the developers involved in the scheme are being held accountable to the same standards. So it isn't necessarily an onerous concept. But that said, the devil is always in the detail. And from a delivery perspective, I think the key is for these strategies to be as flexible as possible rather than being too onerous so as to put investors or developers off of the opportunity or push up the cost of delivery on that site to an unviable level. I mean, again, the key is for the thought to go in at the outset. And again, law and policy supports this kind of analysis taking place at the planning stage. So to be given weight in a planning decision as a matter of law, Section 106 obligations have to be necessary to make the development acceptable in planning terms, directly related to the development, and then fairly and reasonably related in scale and kind to the development. And it's always worth stress testing how these principles apply to each plot, not just the development as a whole. But once that's agreed, you then tie those plot-specific obligations to the relevant plot alone. The developer's lawyer should be insisting that the planning agreement must clarify that landowners won't be liable for any breach on parts of the site which they don't own. That simple wording, if you take it together with obligations that are crystal clear, that they relate only to particular plots, really helps prospective purchasers know that they can focus on the liabilities associated only with the land within their proposed demise, and it saves a lot of time and money down the track. Yeah, that's right, Sheridan. You know, what I found in reality is how pragmatic and willing to work with developers of local planning authority is very much depends on the specific council. You have some councils that say, these are the conditions, take them or leave them, and that are willing to work on the wording of and the specific timing of when conditions relating both to the planning consent and the section 106 need to be discharged. A reasonable approach that will work with most local authorities is what we've been discussing is to agree the that the development will be phased and that each condition should be discharged by the relevant phase rather than all at once or on a site-wide basis. 
In this way, while you may not be able to agree the specific wording of the condition or what stage of the development it is triggered, you may have more room to ensure that you will only be required to discharge conditions at a time that they are relevant to the work that you're doing on site and that the responsibility for that condition can be parceled up to the most appropriate parties depending on the funding and delivery strategy. And I have found that most local authorities are open and willing to work with developers to alter the wording of conditions via non-material amendments once the consent has been granted. However, this goes back to the more of the remedy approach that Verity was talking about rather than a preventative measure. While we're talking about Section 106s with an eye on the commercial future of the scheme, I'd like to add it's always worth using this as an opportunity to be clear in your new section 106 on the status of historical 106s. This may be necessary because unlike with planning permissions, old section 106 obligations do not automatically fall away when a new chapter in the planning history is started. The wording should be clear that if you're implementing the new permission, the old section 106s are no longer in effect. Otherwise, the prospective purchaser or lender has to form a view on potentially tiers of duplicated Section 106 liabilities. Uh, Mike, I'd throw in as well that even if you haven't got a mortgagee at the planning stage, and even though the mainstream view is that a lender doesn't take Section 106 liabilities unless they step in as a mortgagee in possession, which they always try never to do, always remaining at arm's length with a receiver or, or an, a, an administrator, always get your lawyers to throw in a clarification into the 106 that any future mortgagees only take liability if they do actually enforce their security by stepping in as a successor, a successor entitled to the, to the defaulting borrower. That will save you lots of time and money getting major lenders on board with 106 risk later on. Um, but moving on, even if you've got a sensible allocation of planning conditions and obligations to each plot or phase in your wider scheme, you know, it's inevitable that there will be some site-wide obligations uh, which remain and successors entitled could remain on the hook for the obligations of other plot owners. Um, and Verity's touched on that, but that, that really is where real estate lawyers come in. Yes, thanks, Sheridan. Before you structure your planning application, you do need to try to be identifying up front the overarching structure of the different interests. And I guess understanding your client's business plan to the extent that it's developed is key, and it will, will also depend on what your client's ultimate exit strategy is. Um, but it ultimately, it comes down to understanding at the outset how we're going to deal with the responsibilities and liabilities under the permission and how they will be carved up between the landowner and the other investors or developers that are coming into the scheme, both during construction and during the operational stage. Clearly, it's quite straightforward if the developer or landowner intends to develop and hold the asset. It's relatively easy. They would remain as landlord, imposing similar obligations in the various agreements for lease that they dish out to each um, purchaser of each plot. And that would make it clear which planning conditions and obligations the relevant plot owner is responsible for during construction. And then after PC, when the lease has been granted, there's clarity during the operational phase on who is responsible for what. And then the leaseholder can indemnify the landlord for the aspects that it is responsible for. And the landlord can in turn indemnify the leaseholders of the other plots, not only for what they are responsible for delivering, but also in a, in a sort of back to back indemnity way for what the other leaseholders are supposed to be doing. That, that's great. Let's put a bit of flesh on that. So hopefully the planning permission has been neatly cut up into phases or plots 
and overwhelmingly conditions and obligations are tied neatly to those sp specific phases or plots. So that means we can drop in a nice neat schedule somewhere in the agreement for lease that has a long list of the conditions and obligations in the left-hand column. And in the right-hand column mostly says, this is a site-specific obligation for you, the leaseholder, to sort out. And in some cases, not too many, it'll say, this is a site-wide obligation for the freeholder to sort out. Yeah, so for example, the leaseholder will be responsible for discharging reserve matters for their phase of the development, assuming it's the outline planned mission. The site-specific construction stage conditions will be the responsibility of the leaseholder, like sorting out contamination, archaeological investigations, etc., and all of the considerate contractor and local employment and procurement stuff. Ideally, the Section 106 agreement should have all the financial contributions tied to leaseholders' plot alone, not just the financial contributions towards community facilities like education and healthcare or infrastructure like highways, but even things like monitoring contributions just to minimise loose ends of liability to other plots. And the leaseholder will be responsible for any ongoing obligations and conditions on their plot, like the operational requirements of all the various strategies and plans approved at the planning stage. Yeah, that's right, Mike. So the leaseholder will be responsible for developing and gaining approval for things like the facade cleaning and maintenance strategy, the waste management strategy, and the travel plan upon completion of the development. They will also be responsible for developing the detailed design that supports some of the overall strategies that are approved as part of the outline consents. For example, the drainage and sustainability strategy. There may be site-wide strategies for the development for each of these elements, and then the leaseholder will need to be able to demonstrate that their plot-specific design complies with the wider strategy to gain consent. This is, again, where developers need to think about the impacts the assumptions they make at planning stage will have on the operational stage, as some of the early strategies, such as the waste management strategy, can have a huge impact on OPEX costs. Similarly, they need to leave flexibility in the consent to allow the leaseholder to make the plot-specific strategies work to emerging policies when they deliver the detailed consent a couple of years down the road. And the freeholder, um, for their part, will commit in the agreement for lease to sorting out what falls between the cracks between the various plots or is unavoidably necessary for the whole scheme. So another one is maybe in London, the freeholder will need to hold back areas for the mayor's cycle hire scheme. Maybe there'll be areas of landscaping outside of the plots for the freeholder to provide and maintain. Um, and there could be parking spaces to be provided to a car club operator and maybe some highway works for access. But maybe one of the biggest roles, Sheridan, of the freeholder is that it's to give each leaseholder recourse to the others, complying with their own planning conditions and obligations, because each leaseholder commits upward to the freeholder and the freeholder can commit back down on behalf of all of the other leaseholders. In, in essence, they're creating a contractual framework for the leaseholders to be able to take on the risk that another leaseholder on a different part of the site just doesn't deliver. It does get a little bit more tricky if the freeholder in this scenario is, say, a development SPV with no other real assets. So the strength of the indemnity then comes into question. And it's then that you get into the realms of public uh, parent company guarantees and the like. Also, Verity, the freeholder needs to make sure that any commercial flexibility baked into a permission doesn't become an unacceptable risk to a prospective purchaser or funder of a plot. 
at the planning stage, you might say, we want to be able to decide, for example, how the affordable housing is distributed across the plots as we bring forward reserve matters ap uh, approvals. Um, and that will be sorted out through a kind of rolling affordable housing location plan updated before commencement on each plot. If you've been thinking ahead, maybe the 106 will be clear that some plots will never have any affordable housing on them, which makes things even easier for a prospective purchaser of, of the unaffected plots. But where affordable housing could go on your plot, the freeholder agrees how much, uh, and in the other agreements for lease, prohibits other plot owners from applying to the council to shift more than their agreed share of affordable housing onto you. And your recourse to the other plot holders is through the freeholder. Along the same lines, at the planning stage, you commonly have site-wide floor space maxima for various use classes. So the developer has some flexibility as to how much resi, flexible retail, office, hotel, etc., will go into each plot. But the council has certainty as to how much overall floor space on the wider site they are authorising. The freeholder can helpfully commit not to cause or permit the floor space figures for each plot to be breached in the schedule that the various plot owners have agreed with the freeholder and directly with each other. Exactly. And uh, Mike, I'm going to push my, uh, my Victoria sponge. So, you know, this stops anyone from taking more cream for their Victoria sponge from other leaseholder slices than they're paying the freeholder for. You might have the same thing for, say, uh, car parking spaces if there's a, a site-wide limitation. But as you know, the seller won't always remain on the scene. But if we were acting for a prospective purchaser, we would look to make it a condition precedent to taking one of those slices of the lovely Victoria sponge we've been talking about. So to speak that there will be some kind of planning cooperation agreement, whereby everyone acquiring one of the plots contracts directly with the others on the kinds of things that you and Raquel have been describing. And how complex that drafting gets depends on how the planning permission and 106 were structured up front. If they left scope for things on one plot to hold up development elsewhere, or for plot owners to be liable for construction and operational conditions and obligations on the land of others, in those situations, instead of having a nice neat schedule, these planning cooperation agreements or, or schedules to an agreement for lease end up having almost to write a shadow permission and shadow section 106 agreement properly dividing up the liabilities and responsibilities. Let's throw out some concrete examples. Say the affordable housing for an entire site was to be located on one plot. You couldn't occupy certain proportions of private uh, resi units on other plots until proportions of the affordable housing uh, have been completed and transferred to a registered provider. But the prospective purchasers of each plot need clarity on who can build out and sell how many private units before the affordable housing requirements are triggered. Yeah, that's a tough one we grapple with sometimes, isn't it? You'd really want flexibility in the Section 106 agreement itself that the developers could elect later on where they want to be able to build out the private units first rather than it being left open like that. There's something we have managed to get in where the Section 106 hadn't yet been finalised. But um, if the Section 106 is a done deal, you want as much as possible for that to be a condition precedent. So it's sorted out before our client takes the site. If it's not feasible to front load it like that, then I guess maybe here on getting the affordable housing built out before you take the site would be an option. Maybe the landowners could agree between themselves who would build out how much before 
the affordable housing was delivered and then you could look to security backed indemnities in place to make sure that if the party who has to deliver the affordable doesn't your client has the funds to do it and we'd obviously need to make sure they had the stepping rights to build it out too i mean the ultimate key being that we your client can take control of the land and remove any stumbling block to being able to deliver their own development Verity, what if there are, you know, huge 106 payments linked to more than one plot? Well, the share that your client would have to pay for their plot might be reflected in the purchase price up front, or it could be that they need to commit to reimbursing another plot owner or the developer. Again, you're talking about making the seller satisfy as many of these payments as possible as a condition precedent to your client acquiring their interest, so you take the risk off the table effectively. But if that isn't feasible in terms of cash flow for the development, then we would normally look to have an indemnity underwritten by an entity of appropriate covenant strength. Um, in a forward funding scenario where the developer carries out construction on the buyer's behalf, with the buyer often funding the development in stages, we'd look to use a retention, which is a contractual mechanism, whereby the buyer would hold back enough of the maximum commitment to ensure that if it had to, it could deliver the affordable in the event that there's a developer default. Verity, what about if the payments are so large and so uncertain that they could totally change the economics of the deal? I'm thinking of where, for example, in London planning policies, the boroughs can review the viability assessment a developer submitted at the planning stage um, in, in relation to how much affordable housing they'd provide at various later points in the life of the scheme up to when most of the residential units are sold. Um, so that's for the local authority to be able to claw back their share uh, of any uplift the developer gets from improvements in the housing market for extra affordable housing. So uh, it, it might be extra affordable housing um, units or uh, an extra affordable housing contribution. Yeah, I mean, this kind of stuff really needs to be built into the deal fundamentals before the client buys their part of the wider site. Um, the buyer needs to work out the worst case outcome if an early, mid or late viability assessment has to be carried out and results in an unexpected payment. And to be honest, it's not really an exact science. I guess the clients would need to consider the chances of that worst case outcome happening and then again look to an indemnity or a retention or even factor it into the price mechanics. And as a buyer, uh, you can commit the developer to commence the development by a certain stage or to carry out the minimum works needed so that the early and mid viability reviews don't occur. I guess it's more around the, the, the late viability reviews. Yeah, exactly. And I think you can also require the developer to potentially hold back a small number of residential units just in case there's a delay. So there is a sort of late viability review and the number of actual affordable dwellings needs to go up and you don't want them to go on your site. Shall we say a quick word about the community infrastructure levy referred to as SIL? Um, so this is a charge which can be levied by local authorities on new development. It's for local authorities to use to help them deliver the infrastructure needed to support development in their area. Not all authorities have SIL, but where they do, it basically takes the place of the Section 106 infrastructure payments. Go, go on, Gemma. Tell us, what, what happens if the SIL isn't paid? Well, SIL is payable either by a person who has by notice assumed liability to pay 
or if no one has assumed liability or the person who has assumed liability just doesn't pay, then there is a formula for the council splitting liability between the owners based on the re relative values of their interests. So potentially more indivisible liability baked into our Victoria sponge. Or it is divisible, but you don't really know how the council will value the interest and split it up. True, um, Gemma, but if you, uh, let's keep the Victoria sponge going. If you bake SIL into your consenting strategy, you can still keep it separate between what will be future parts of the scheme, because SIL is payable in respect of the chargeable development for which planning permission has been granted. But if the development is built out pursuant to a phased planning permission, whether a full planning permission or an outline one, each phase is a separate chargeable development. You've got to be careful as the permission needs to be expressed to be phased pretty clearly before you implement or it's too late. But maybe you have a condition expressed providing for the development to be carried out in phases and saying a phasing plan has to be, has to be approved by the council before each phase is implemented. So you've got some flexibility to match phases to the plots that will be sold off as late as possible but it's still clear that SIL is only payable per phase. Yes, and in the agreements for lease or the cooperation agreement that we'd be drafting, the various owners will all agree with each other, either directly or indirectly, to cover the SIL for their own plots backed up by indemnities. And sometimes you, you see developers agreeing nuances to that, like, you know, we all pay our own SIL, of course, but I'm taking the reduction you'd get for the existing development being demolished in your plot, even though it should be reducing your SIL. But I imagine, Verity, that's reflected in, in the purchase price. Yes, and as nobody can be sure how the council's valuers will split the sill if it was related to the whole site because the permission hasn't been properly expressed to be phased and, and was not paid when the scheme is not phased, the indemnities just have to be bigger and nobody likes to give large indemnities or have large parent company guarantees sitting out there, so it can cause some difficulty. If the plot owners are all going to be bound by the same Section 106 agreement, and benefit from the same planning permission, we do need uh, to talk about how the agreements for lease or cooperation agreements are going to make sure that no single plot owner puts the planning consent itself at risk for the others. So first, I think uh, we need a word about the Pilkington principle. The Pilkington principle derives from the well-known Pilkington case on inconsistent planning permissions. And this is, this is where there's a risk that if one plot owner drops in an application for fresh planning permission on their part of the site alone and then implements that permission, it's possible they could make it impossible for other plot owners to implement the earlier site-wide permission if it's not yet been implemented. And, and the ultimate risk is they could actually um, create a position where um, there's, no, um, there's no development um, that can be carried out that, that actually it would be authorised development. They could render the whole site unauthorised. Um, but certainly they could make it impossible to carry out all or part of the development authorised by the early permission while still properly complying with the site-wide permissions, planning conditions and Section 106 obligations. So, Mike, say the, the site-wide permission says you can't build out and let out more than, I don't know, 60% of private residential dwellings until you've built out affordable housing on one particular plot or delivered some highway access works on the particular plot. But then the owner of the particular plot uh, goes and gets a drop-in permission for something there that means you can't deliver that affordable housing or access anymore. Um, so well, then, then you can't deliver more than 60% of private residential dwellings under the site-wide permission anymore. 
So to keep my dodgy analogy going, it's like saying you can't have the last two slices of Victoria sponge until all the pieces are filled with the right kind of jam. And then someone says, actually, you know, I'm not interested in Victoria sponge. I want to drop in a piece of chocolate cake into where my slice of Victoria sponge was going to be. So all the slices of Victoria sponge will never be filled with jam. I think you're overcooking this one, Sheridan. Now, let's get back to the agreements, the release or cooperation agreements. Those would say that no plot owner can put in these kinds of planning applications unless the others have no reasonable objection to it. But you do need to be careful. You need to balance these types of controls in the agreements or leases to ensure you keep them titled to the development marketable. Too many wide-reaching controls, which last for the duration of the long leases, could make the title unmarketable, which would be a bit of a disaster too. You, you can say it's only where there's a risk you'll call pro cause problems for the other plots that you need to get the consent of the others. But then who makes that call? And what if they miss something and they get permission and implement? So, so what we're seeing here, Verity, is there are limits to creativity. Thoughts up front. I think we'll wrap it up there for now. I hope we've given some practical thoughts on what to bear in mind when you gaze into the crystal ball um, that is the commercial future of your major phased or mixed-use scheme. I mean, one thing, just looking at another industry that this all reminds me of is um, there's a principle in software development. If you spot a software glitch in the construction phase, you just tweak the code in a few minutes, cheap. If you spot the glitch during system testing, you know, it has to be spotted and sent back and it costs 10 times more to fix. And if it's detected, after the software is released into the market to customers, it costs 25 times more uh, to fix. And our industry, it sounds, isn't really all that different. By the way, let's just put this out there. Can anyone here actually bake Victoria Sponge? Um, I can't. Gemma? I can't say I've ever tried, Sheridan. No, sorry. <laughs> Mike? Sorry, I, I, I can't add anything to what Gemma's just said. <laughs> I'm definitely no Mary Berry, that's for sure. Raquel? No, I am not a baker by any means. <laughs> oh, so, so we're not the people who have been buying out all the flour in Tesco during lockdown. Anyway, thank you everyone for listening to the Planning Life Insights of Brian. You've been listening to the fantastic Raquel Pacifici of Cast, Verity Wainton, Gemma Green, Mike Dempsey and me, Sheridan Traeger of BCLP. You'll be hearing from us again and the Planning Life Insights of Brian will return with more on what you need to know about the UK planning system in these interesting times. Keep well and keep safe. <laughs>